North and South Korea are smiling, but for how long? That Trump book, can we trust the guy who wrote it? Syria, the war is over, but the killing goes on. And who wants to join the army? Good question. Military intervention in North Korea should be the very last resort. That's the view of one of South Korea's most decorated officers. In a rare speech at the London think tank, the Policy Exchange, retired Lieutenant General In Bum Chun also likened the North Korean leader to Hitler. Ali Gibson was listening. In a packed room of journalists and defence experts, Lieutenant General Chun didn't mince his words. The North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has a personality similar to Hitler's, he said. South Korea is at real risk of chemical and biological attack from the North, and the West fails to realise how heavily militarised North Koreans are. But the retired general said military intervention would be fraught with complications. It's not going to be like Iraq or Afghanistan. You know, it's not going to be getting rid of Hussein. It's more going to be like trying to get rid of Allah. So can you imagine what that would look like? Kim Jong-un and the Kim family is a, is a cult in North Korea. Kim Jong-un's nuclear ambitions and missile tests have put him in the firing line for a promise of fire and fury from U.S. President Donald Trump. But this week has seen the first talks between the North and South for two years, focusing on the Winter Olympics. With South Korea playing peacekeeper and even crediting Donald Trump for bringing the two countries together, it seems the good cop, bad cop routine could be paying off. I don't think President Trump, or I don't hope that he is mad, but uh, he has made the conditions where he has put the North Koreans at an imbalance. So for now, he's actually put in a direction where uh, negotiations has started. Whilst most of the focus has been on North Korea's nuclear ambitions, there is too another threat that General Chun believes deserves our attention, that of cyber attack. We should be very worried. About 10 years ago, they attacked one of our banks. I would not be surprised if they are hacking into this camera right now. I have a cell phone and I assume that it's being monitored by somebody. So North Korea cyber capability is something that I think is right below their nuclear capability as to a threat. General Chun spent 35 years in the military, retiring as deputy commander of the 1st South Korean Army, serving alongside American forces. His opinions were definitely food for thought for Professor John Bew. He leads the Britain in the World project for the Policy Exchange. Well, this is going to be the definitive international issue of 2018, in which the UK is intimately involved, partly because it's a guarantor of the original UN-guaranteed peace settlement after the Korean War. So it's absolutely crucial that we hear more voices in the UK, people who actually know the detailed circumstances, the different types of threat that North Korea poses from cyber to nuclear uh, and not just have a sort of circular debate between ourselves and our Western allies. The world will now be watching closely to see if North and South Korea can continue their talks past the upcoming Winter Olympics and what role the US and the international community will have. Thank you. And Ali Gibson, who produced that story, is here with me now, along with our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Um, Ali, um, how significant was this speech? 
Well, General Chun has spoken extensively in the US, but it's quite rare for him to speak in the UK. This was his only public appearance during this trip to Britain. And many of the people in the room last night were going to sort of question him in person for the first time. Um, of course, they value his experience of these issues. He served as um, head of special forces in South Korea. He's had an operational tour in Iraq. And he was also the deputy chief of staff for the Korean-American Combined Forces Command. He's also um, been involved um, in questioning defectors from the North Korean regime after they crossed into South Korea. So he's been mentioning those experiences in his speech. Um, Professor John Bu, who was mentioned at the end of my report there, he also felt that it was important that we don't um, just kind of see the North Korea issue through the lens of sort of American media reporting. We actually speak to those who have a much closer experience of the threat from North Korea um, because they live just a few miles away. Yeah, and what did he say about how afraid the South Koreans are of North Korea, given recent events this week? Well, the general himself said, he said, I live 35 miles away from uh, the, the demilitarised zone, but he said people in general are actually very calm in South Korea. Um, he thought it was mainly because of the assurance that they have from their alliance with the United States. Um, they're worried about, you know, the effect that uh, a conflict could have on their country but he said they they don't really always think about the prospect of a, of a nuclear war he did however say that he thought south koreans should be more cautious um, and more worried than they are at present not just because of missile tests but also because of the threat of cyber attack christopher lee how long do you think it will be or will we ever see a north korean general speaking at the policy exchange uh, not for some time, because apart from anything else, he won't be allowed to. Mm. Um, let's put so in, in, in a bit of perspective, for example, the, 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 the South Koreans have lived with this whole thing for 60 years. You know, father, grandfather, etc., and now the Vox Pop in the streets. And so they don't see it in the way that we do. We see it because the biggest threat to North Korea, perhaps, and South Korea is Donald Trump who is perhaps one of the more ignorant, most ignorant uh, president that the Western world has had. And what he has said has aggravated the whole balance of people's opinion. Now, it may be, as he claims, so how do you that he is actually, the fact that he's been a hard man has brought this uh, rapprochement together. Indeed. I mean, this time last week we were talking about buttons on desks for nuclear weapons. I mean, what... The, no, no, hang on. This, but last week, in the last couple of weeks, we've also been saying there's going to be a meeting. The, the, the North Koreans will be going to South Korea because they're going there because they're going to put two ice skaters in and let's hope one of them but wins because that will do a lot for the okay. North Korean people so, themselves. So we see, a, we see a thawing of relations, at least publicly at the moment, between North and South. What yeah, do you but think all, North, the, all, all what, the North Koreans have got to do is to wind up another nuclear And uh, is nuclear that what you think will test. happen? Yeah, I do. And then, and then, and then the, uh, the guy in Washington can say, I'll get my button out and I, my finger hovers over it. And then we go to the United Nations and they say that we can still obliterate you, etc. And then somebody digs out the fact that because of this, because of what's gone on, he, uh, uh, President Trump, has asked the Defence Department to look at the idea of producing very small and that sort of uh, 10 kiloton warheads. So your interpretation then is that uh, there's no real optimism to no, come No, I don't say this. no real optimism. I, uh, just a great caution, the fact that something's going to happen, it's got to happen to, to, to make this different. And there's only one thing that Americans could see that would happen, and that was the agree. there's no further test. But once there is a test, on the day there is a test, 
all bets at rapprochement are off. Mm. Christopher, stay with us. Ali Gibson, thank you very much. Now, the latest book on Trump includes the suggestion that he hasn't got the mental stability to be day-to-day president. But Donald says he's a stable genius. Fire and Fury inside the Trump White House, written by Michael Wolff, portrays Trump as childlike with a short attention span. Simon Marks from Feature Story News is in Washington. Hello, Simon. Uh, what can you tell us about this author, Michael Wolff? He's not a Washington political reporter, is he? Can we trust no. what he's written? <laughs> well, no, he isn't, Kate. And uh, the book has stuck in the craw, I think it's fair to say, uh, of the Washington glitterati who view this as uh, something of an incursion by uh, a, a denizen of the New York set uh, who has come down to Washington, D.C. and quite literally parked himself on a sofa in the West Wing of the White House for several months watching all the comings and goings there, talking to some of Donald Trump's top uh, at the time officials, including, of course, the ousted uh, chief strategist Stephen Bannon, who appears to have been the man who brought Mr. Wolf into the West Wing of the White House. And what Washington is really recoiling from, I think, is, uh, first of all, a bit of schadenfreude that he got to write the book and they didn't, but also that there are factual errors in the book, errors that Mr. Wolf promises he will correct when the second edition comes out, as it will momentarily, given that you can't buy the first edition in America now for love nor money. Uh, but Michael Wolf is essentially saying, look, there might be some small errors of fact here and there in the book, but broadly, trust me on this, and trust me because you know it rings true. You know in your heart of hearts, whether you love him or loathe him, that Donald Trump really isn't up to the job. Well, let's bring in Dr. Dana Allen, Senior Fellow for US Foreign Policy and Transatlantic Affairs at the IISS Think Tank. Good to speak to you today. Do you think people just want to believe it's true because they like the, the, the details of this book? You say don't want to believe it's true. Do want to believe it's true. Yeah. Well, I, I think that, um, you know, the main, the main reason that the book is taken seriously is because it confirms what we already knew. So uh, Wolf is apparently not a practice to journalist. He's, he's written other things that have been uh, criticized for their factual accuracy. But the general picture of a president who really isn't fit for the job is not news. Um, in fact, I saw an interview of him where he's said he was somewhat surprised the book has had such a big impact because he recognized it wasn't news. And in the almost year since his inauguration, how important do you think the US president should be to the UK, to its military and to the British strategic commitments? Well, the the American president obviously has huge scope of American foreign and national security policy, so he's he's very important. I mean, this was an unfortunate time for Britain to kind of try to double down on what it calls the special relationship in leaving the European Union because it's at a time when American leadership is very very much in question. That was that was just bad luck, I suppose you could say. Um, but, um, you know, the, the fundamentals of American-UK American um, strategic cooperation are not going to be destroyed by Donald Trump. Um, and there are deeper factors at work, and I mean, one problem is that Britain has kind of diminished itself strategically um, in comparison, for example, to Berlin. 
So um, the Trump factor is, in a, in a sense, aggravating to all of that. Christopher Lee. I'm just thinking that um, if, if everybody wants to get a double uh, a double whammy on this and put it in perspective, I recommend they go and read Joshua Green's book, which he did earlier in the year, which basically says this sort of thing, but in more detail and with great more, more authority. Uh, July next year, NATO summit, right? Uh, I think that is the point, and this is what this will eventually lead up to. It's not designed to do so, it will lead up to. And that's a yet another assessment of the special relationship. Special relationship exists when both sides want it to, and otherwise no, and nor has it done since Churchill. But when you get to that summit in July where some big issues are going to have to be decided, uh, at least confronted, I think that the British, and this is looking at it from a parochial point of view, the British will have to make uh, their fi- uh, another assessment, perhaps their final assessment, before the run into the next American, American presidential election, which would only be about 18 months away then. They will have to make their assessment of Trump, and I think that will probably be the story that we're running with on the back of this uh, in six months' time. Up until that time, Dr. Allen, how do you think Theresa May should play her relations with Donald Trump? Well, I'm not sure I can give advice on that. I, you know, she obviously got into some trouble, some by being at least in in domestic political terms, by being the first allied leader to go and meet with him at a time when his presidency had just started off in an incredibly um, disruptive and, in some ways, embarrassing way. I mean, this was the moment of of, of the first iteration of the of the Muslim ban. Um, you know, the, the United K- Kingdom obviously has to have good, proper relations with the United States, and that includes with the United States president. But, um, there, you know, at, at this point, there's there, there's not much to do. I guess if, if you're asking, the one thing I would say is don't emphasize or don't try to imagine uh, the special relationship as some sort of get-out-of-jail card regarding the dilemmas of Brexit, because that's just not going to be sustainable. In that light, Christopher, how should Britain view its relationship? I tell you, I don't, I can't answer that, uh, because I think you just sort of, the British always wait for the next presidential election, and that's all they ever do. Uh, It's really a question, I suppose, turn around for Dr. Allen, and there's this, why is it that the Europeans have such a different view of Trump than the Americans do? Um... I don't understand the question. I think that uh, Trump is very unpopular in the United States, and he's very unpopular in Europe. What? Where's where's Simon Simon Marks? Perhaps you can enlighten us on this. Well, look, I mean, I think that this book has changed the conversation, frankly, on both sides of the Atlantic in one very important way. And uh, that is that now regularly openly discussed across the United States is a subject that previously was only sort of muttered about in the salons of Georgetown and, you know, Cafe Milano and the stylish restaurants, the uh, breakfast room at the Four Seasons here. And that's the issue of Donald Trump's mental acuity. Is he sufficiently mentally stable to occupy the Oval Office until 2020. What kind of a man goes on Twitter at 7.30 in the Maryland mountains of the Camp David presidential retreat and asserts that he is, in fact, a very stable genius? There's a turning point for the presidency there and for the way in which this president is viewed on both sides of the Atlantic that I think the Trump administration will find very, very difficult to escape in the months ahead. All right, and for the moment, we'll leave it there. Simon Marks and Dr Dana Allen, thank you. Thank you for your time today.
Still to come, those new army recruitment ads. Within days, I was more than confident about being who I was. I'm not afraid to talk about having a boyfriend. PFBS Rep. 400,000 people are under siege. Hospitals are being bombed and children are being used as bargaining chips. Senior UN official Jan Egeland says that's the situation in the eastern Ghouta district of Syria. Is it time the world stopped doing nothing about it? I'm joined by former Army CBRN specialist Hamish de Breton-Gordon. Uh, good to speak to you today, Hamish. Is the situation in eastern Ghouta worse than what you saw in Aleppo? It's absolutely shocking. Um, and I think we probably spoke uh, in December 2016 about Aleppo and what was going on there. And I'm sure I said, you know, I, I've never seen anything quite so disastrous and destructive. But what we've seen over the last um, two weeks um, in East Ghouta over Christmas and New Year period um, ha- has shocked even those of us who have been sort of closely involved um, in Syria since the inception of the civil war. We've had relentless uh, bombardments by both Russian and Syrian aircraft. Um, OSM, the Syrian medical charity I support, has got three hospitals in Ghouta. They've all been hit and put out of commission. Um, And they, uh, at the moment, they're housing uh, 125 very ill children who, um, between OSM, myself, and Dr. David Knott, we're trying to get them out. But they're actually sheltering these hospitals that are getting hammered. Not only that, but no food has got into eastern Ghouta for about the last uh, three to four years. Uh, There's little electricity. There's no running water. The place is raised to the ground. It's uh, it's a sort of Stalingrad-type scene from the Second World War or or a medieval battlefield. Um, It is... It's just shocking. One can't imagine how it could be worse. You want the bombing to stop. You want a no-fly zone. How likely is any of that? Well, number one thing we need in Ghouta and really across Syria is a ceasefire. Um, that is uh, what uh, we in, in all the NGOs and others have been calling for. Um, we have managed to speak direct to President Assad over Christmas period and also to some very senior Russians. Uh, we did manage to get a short ceasefire on the 27th of December and got 29 children out of Ghouta, but, uh, and we rather hoped that it might extend. Um, but it is in tremendously difficult, and, and really your, your run into this highlighted the issues. I, I haven't heard the Prime Minister or Jeremy Corbyn or any senior politicians make any comment about Syria over the last two weeks in this dreadful bombing campaign in Ghouta or any world leaders. I think President Macron last Thursday said a few words that he was looking at it. But there seems to be global... Disinterest is probably harsh because people are focused elsewhere. But at the moment, world leaders are not prepared to engage. And and their disengagement, as we are seeing, reported on social media in real time, Mm. children dying from starvation and from wounds uh, in front of us. Hamish de Breton-Gordon, our defence analyst Christopher Lee has been listening to what you've been saying. Hamish, just just one thing. We're talking about what is why the, why the world hasn't done much more. We're talking about the uh, Russian and, uh, and Syrian attacks. Uh, what about the rebels? Well, that's true. There are two... I, I was going to say there are two sides to this conflict. There are many sides to it which make it so entirely complex. The Free Syrian Army, the rebels who are fighting, who generally 
Western powers are supporting. But then in amongst that, you have what's called HTS, which is the remnants of al-Qaeda. You have the remnants of the so-called Islamic State who are also fighting. Um, and it is, you know, in, almost impossible to extricate them. But the majority of the bombing, there are a majority of the deaths, I think, you know, whoever figures you use, it's somewhere between 80 and 90 percent is caused by Russian and Syrian airstrikes. And what I have been suggesting with my colleagues at OSM, and particular with Dr. David Knott... OSM being is, the organisation, just spell it out for us, Hamish. Yes, it is the Union of Syrian Medical Charities. It's basically a Syrian charity run from outside and funded from outside. And Dr. David Knott and myself are the, are the sort of uh, expert non-Syrians who, who are helping them run. But what we're calling for is is a ceasefire and what i believe you know and with my military background that ceasefire is only going to be effective if we have un monitors and peacekeepers because as you say christopher there are so many sides fighting here we need i think peacekeepers to keep them apart to protect not only the syrians but also everybody else to allow the aid to get in and the the democratic Geneva peace process time to work out. Hamish, I mean, you, you, you're very vocal about these subjects, and I'm just wondering, you're talking about the, the deafening silence of the British government on this. Even privately, are you having any interest? Y- yes, I mean, privately and certainly, you know, many many MPs um, we're, we're talking to and I'm talking to personally, you know, but, but to be perfectly frank, we're getting a bit more traction from Russians um, from uh, the, the Jordanians, uh, uh, Jordanian politicians and royal family and others around the world. Um, I quite accept that the Prime Minister and Mr Corbyn and Boris Johnson are focused elsewhere at the moment, and mm. this might be the most important thing, but it is on our doorstep. Um, it is helping, you know, we have defeated militarily the so-called Islamic State, but the conditions in particularly Idlib province is creating the conditions to allow them to regrow again. So quite apart from anything else, if we're going to keep the so-called Islamic State fighters off the streets of the UK, we've got to engage in Syria and make sure that there is some sort of peace some sort of dil- dip- diplomatic and political solution so that Syria can move forward. What, but what about Russia in all of this? We know that they want to have a meeting of all sides to try and bring about some kind of ceasefire, but um, they just don't seem to be making any headway towards peace at the moment. Well, that's right. They're, they were calling the Sochi talks, um, but the opposition in Syria didn't want to attend. And quite frankly, I mean, Russia has a vested interest in this. There's no way that they can run these talks. The UN is the right place to do it. But I, d- I don't know. They, they, there seems to be a bit of bit, bit of weariness here, a, a bit of energy lacking. I, I would like to see the, the UN re-energised, which is why we need Boris Johnson and others to re-energise it in New York um, to get it going again. There is the Geneva peace process. Isn't the truth, though, really, is that, isn't the truth, though, that Assad will just keep on bombing until it's all over? Well, that's his plan, of course. You know, he wants total victory. Um, and and to be frank with the Russians, he's pretty much got that. If we accept that, what we can't, what I can't accept, and I'm sure what, what the general public and everybody's listening to this can't accept, is seeing in our eye, you know, on our screens, children, the future of Syria, not only are 25% malnourished and dying of starvation, 75% have post-traumatic stress disorder, most have got no education, and they're the future of Syria, 
And, you know, that, that is, they are just going to get bombed. And the 125 children in Guja at the moment are going to die unless we get them out in the next couple of weeks. So I'm, you know, I'm appealing to everybody's humanity. And once, once we get some sort of ceasefire and we get engagement in Syria, then the Geneva process is supposed to deliver free and fair elections. And if the Syrian people vote in Assad again, then, you know, that, that, is, that is their will. I doubt that it will happen. Hamish, we can't, a... I think we can't just turn, turn a blind eye to this anymore. Hamish, we don't turn blind eyes, do we? I mean, what, we, this is the reality of the world. Uh, the television ad comes up and we all send text, three pounds, for a new blanket. And we've done our part. And that's how the world has now become, not cynical, but tired, and that's how it does it. In the meantime, you've got President Assad, who is not going to give up an item or iota. And he's not going to do that, because to do that, he's out, he's gone, and all that matters with it, and he loses. Uh, Russia is the superpower that is looking for a bigger picture in the whole of the Mediterranean and the Middle East. And we've got, in March, the presidential elections with Mr. Putin uh, going for, for, another, for another term. And then we have the basic fact. There is no organization within the United Nations, within the United States, within the EU, that has the authority to change the way this war has been prosecuted uh, in, 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 in not in, just Syria, but in the whole of the Middle East. And what we're seeing is a complete generational change in the whole of society of the Middle East. In that light, briefly, hey, Mr. Bretton Gordon, can you offer us any optimism? Well, I mean, the only optimism I offer, and I absolutely agree with everything you're saying, and it is a shocking indictment of where we are. But in the cold light of day, it is the West, it is the UK and the US who is going to have to pay to rebuild Syria. And we must get leverage from that. The Russians have now pretty much got what they want in Syria, and absolutely they've got the elections coming up in March. They've also got the World Cup coming up in the summer, and uh, Mr. Putin will be really disappointed if, if Britain decides not to go as with others. Mm -hmm. So there is leverage we can have, we can have in this. It, is, it does seem desperate, but at the end of the day, I just, you know, I refer you to little Karim, little Qasim, uh, and little uh, Nasser, who are dying in front of our eyes and um, little is being done to help them. And anything that can be done, excepting that Assad is probably going to get away with this for some time, but I'm, you know, look at the International Criminal Court and the Bosnian general okay. who 15 years later found their, got their comeuppance. You know, he will get his comeuppance at some stage, but at the moment we're just focusing on the children and All the right. future of Syria. All right. Hey, Mr. Bretton Gordon, thank you for your time today. Now, a new recruitment campaign for the army has been causing a bit of a stir this week. I was really worried about whether I'd be accepted, but within days I was more than confident about being who I was. I'm not afraid to talk about having a boyfriend. Our traditional cohort would have been white male Caucasian 16 to 25 year olds, and there are not as many of those around as there once were. And our society is changing, and I think it's entirely appropriate for us, therefore, to try and reach out to a much broader base to get the talent that we need in order to sustain that combat effectiveness. The concern, I think, for a lot of people, and it's an understandable concern, and to some degree I have some concern as well, that you end up with an army that's not capable of doing what you want to do, and when you send it away on operations, it's not able to deliver. 
Well, you heard the clip from one of the ads, followed by the Chief of the General Staff, General Sir Nick Carter, and then retired Officer Major General Tim Cross. Um, this new campaign is called This Is Belonging 2018. It includes a number of animations asking questions like, can I be gay in the army or can I practice my faith? Do you need to be a superhero? All the adverts are voiced by real soldiers. Christopher, will it work? Um, that is the problem that the Ministry of Defence and the people that advise them on how to do this have not actually discovered yet why people are not joining the army. The nearest we've got to it, and it's quite a revolutionary thing, is we've got the CGS who was actually saying, listen, our traditional source of recruiting has virtually dried up. We've gone to expecting an army, let's say five years ago, of 110,000 to be brought down to a minimum of, let's say, 80,000. And we can't even get to 80,000 now, 70, 71,000. And that's using the, uh, using the reserves. That hasn't worked. So what he's doing, he's saying there is a big chunk of society in this country that we wouldn't have expected to go to before. We've now got to go to them and not say, come and join us, you know, come and be the best. We're actually having to go and say, please, will you come and join us? Do you think it'll work? Uh, Briefly. <laughs> my instinct is that uh, Tim Cross, General Tim Cross has got it right. The traditional job for a soldier is to go and biff the enemy, is mm. the way he puts it. And I don't think it's in this advertisement system. Briefly, Christopher, very briefly. Anything for next week? There's something yeah, particular? watch Thursday and next week. The Prime Minister of Britain and the President of France are meeting, and they're going to announce an agreement to put British forces on a closer watch with the French in Africa. That's going to be one of the major uh, changes in, in what Britain's doing at the moment. That's all we have time for this week. Thanks to all of our guests. We'll be back same time next week. You can also watch our live Facebook, which is at 3.15 UK time. Thanks for listening. We'll be back same time next week. Bye-bye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2. Yeah,